Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, earlier this week, the federal conservative leader told his followers to go around the media. Should we be worried about Pierre Polyev's depiction of mainstream media and the subsequent backlash? Vladimir Putin concedes to China's concerns over the Ukraine war. Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network, will join us to talk about that. And how did a Zoom meeting propel Canada's Green Party into yet another meltdown? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something that happened earlier this week. And uh, to do that, I want to bring our first guest on. John Best, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Uh, and he does our Friday sessions every uh, Friday to talk about uh, politics, especially at the local and provincial levels here in Ontario. John, I'm so glad of you, that, so happy rather that you could join us on the program. Thanks for being with us here today. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Bill. You're a, a veteran journalist. You've been doing this for a long, long time. You've run newsrooms. You've been a reporter. You've you've done an awful lot of stuff uh, in that way. And uh, I I look at, at, at the people that do journalism well as as people that are essentially serving the public in the same way that elected officials are, except you don't get paid as much as elected officials. Uh, but but when I saw this week, uh, it's something that really bothered me, and we've had a discussion about this in the past, uh, about the way that journalism and journalists in particular are, seem to be victims right now and targets, uh, on, certainly on social media, and, and by some elected officials. I mean, Donald Trump is the classic example of that, the way he went after a number of different journalists, Jim Acosta from CNN, uh, Brian Kerman, who I have on the show many times, too, actually got his press credentials taken away from him. Uh, and we thought, well, that's that's Trump. That's never going to happen here. Well, it's starting to happen, and, and it's frankly, it's happening with Pierre Polyev. Uh, the other day, of course, we uh, the, the accusations about, well, there weren't not more than accusations, uh, the attacks he had against Global News' Rachel Gilmore, and then on social media, he carried that on. But there was an incident earlier this week, just a couple of days ago, and I'm sure you've seen it, John, and it was uh, uh, Global News' uh, Ottawa correspondent, uh, David Aiken, uh, and Pierre Polyev. And uh, well, let me play the clip, and then I want to get your response to it. This is, this is a little bit of what happened. Uh, just to set this up now, Polyev had called a press conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know you get a few minutes, a few hours notice, depending on who it is. And you've seen this in the background. Of course, the cameras are all set up, and the reporters are in there behind the cameras. And usually, the uh, the politician will make a statement, and then there's usually a Q and A after that, so we can get down to exactly what the story is and why, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, just before Polyev stepped to the microphone, uh, his uh, assistant said, "There's going to be no questions today," uh, which caused an awful lot of people, including David Aiken. Uh, to say, well, why, why are we here then? <laughs> and and so Aiken decided, I'm going to ask questions anyway. If you're not going to allow them, I'm going to ask them because that's what I'm here for and that's what people want to hear. So here's a little bit of that exchange between Polyev and David Aiken. So, I mean, we, we have, we, we have uh, basically a, a liberal heckler who snuck in here today to, well, right. Are you going to let you me make my misstatement? From the guy who actually reported yeah. first on the prime minister breaking the law. Yeah. Are you going to We'd let me make like my statement? just like to ask a question. Say, yes, I've, never, I've actually never seen you heckling the prime I've minister. Before. Ask minister I've never Bear seen you back heckling the, the prime minister. Look, bottom line is this. Are you going to take some questions at the end of this statement? Yes, I'm taking, I will be taking two questions at the very end. I'll thank you very much. Thank you very much. The, uh, so I'm going to start my statement again, and hopefully this time without interruption from uh, the uh, liberal heckling g gathering here. And uh, we'll speak directly to Canadians so that they can hear what the new leader of the opposition has to say. 
So uh, there it was. Uh, your reaction, John. I mean, you've heard this. I'm sure you've seen variations on this theme, but this was rather egregious. What, what, what were your thoughts? Well, it's never good when a reporter is yelling at anybody. Uh, I mean, yelling. If you're yelling at the president as he's boarding the helicopter, that's because the helicopter is noisy. But uh, it, it's never good when a reporter loses it because, in a way, they're starting to march in the parade they're covering. Uh, Although, I, if, if you really look at it from a practical standpoint, the the aide said there'd be no questions, and in the middle of that exchange, Polly Ev agreed to two questions. So, in a way, the Aiken thing sort of worked. Think about uh, David Aiken, as was pointed out in, uh, in a column today. He's not a left-wing, bleeding-heart <laughs> um, liberal uh, by any means. I mean, he he was one of the first people to work for that Sun TV uh, channel. Uh, so he's uh, he's no toady for Prime Minister Trudeau. But you know, it it it, it kind of shows the 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 deterioration between uh, the media and politics, where where a politician could even think that they could simply read a statement and not take questions. Uh, uh, to some degree, what it shows is that the politicians don't believe that the media are as much of a factor as they used to be. And I, I think you're seeing that everywhere. And I think you're even seeing it here locally. Um, the media are, are simply not, uh, particularly when they're expressing opinions, uh, they're, they're simply not the leader. Uh, they're not playing that leadership role that they, they would have played 20, 30 years ago when endorsements by the media were were so uh, important to politicians. Well, and it, you're right, it does happen here. I mean, I've been doing this program for a number of years right now, and it, it's come to my attention, although nobody's ever said it to my face, that there are some people on city council and certainly a lot of staff members who would never come on this program uh, because they don't want to be answering questions. That's all there is to it. They want to make their statements, and, and they don't want any any further discussion about that. And that's, you know, that's fine. If they're going to be that way, but that doesn't mean if they're not, talk with me. It doesn't mean I can't talk about them, but in situations like that. But you and I have both experienced that, and we get over it. I should mention, by the way, uh, for those who may not hold no, Aiken did apologize for his behavior uh, a, a little bit later on. He just said, you know, I, I, I was just angry. I was upset. Uh, he was quoted, I talked to a number of people that were in the room with him when this whole thing happened. And uh, when he was told, or the media was told that uh, the Polly wasn't going to ask questions, they were just there. He says, I'm not an effing stenographer, uh, meaning, you know, I'm here to report. I want to ask questions. Uh, he said that to, to the press secretary, not to Polly himself. But what bothers me about this is, that, first of all, the exchange. Uh, second, to your point, that they don't want to be accountable and they don't want to ask questions. But most importantly, as, as Ruth Arthur wrote in the, in the Toronto Star uh, yesterday, uh, what happened afterwards was even more egregious because both Polyev and his uh, his press guy went on social media and basically said that, that Aiken was swearing at them and cursing at them. And that didn't happen. It didn't happen. Uh, well, it even bothered me that he said a liberal heckler. Pierre Polyev knows damn well who David Aiken is. To characterize him as a liberal heckler, not even call him by name, he, you know, that, that's, it's, it's a, a gross miscarriage of... of, of the, the power that people in the elected office have. Uh, and it's basically another situation. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, it's the Trump matter, you know, the, the press are evil. So, you know, let's demonize the press. Well, it is. And um, to be honest, uh, we've reached a point in, uh, you know, civil discourse now where 
the message will resonate. Uh, Polyev uh, didn't get elected uh, leader of the party because he was uh, demonstrating any kind of liberal tendencies. So uh, there, there will be a large contingent of his supporters who who uh, will have a uh, who will agree with him uh, that the media are biased. And and frankly, uh, if you look at public opinion polls, it's uh, there, there's a lot of. Uh, skepticism about the media it's way down on the list of respected professions it's you know the politicians and the media are really wallowing at the bottom end of the scale and i i don't know where it ends Uh, i i think for for those of us who care about journalism the only thing you can do and it's not very uh sexy but the only thing you can do is just try to be as straightforward as you can be um you know the what do they call it the first cut at uh, history and try to stay out of the personalization of stuff and and just be a, a decent uh, clean journalist that uh, tries to tell the truth and you know it, it that's not fun because you have to do it day in and day out and and then you still at times will be accused of bias so it's uh, it's a tough time right now to be in journalism, but it's also a tough time to be in politics. And frankly, both professions have become somewhat trivialized over the last 10 years. Well, and, and I think there are people that will feed that fire, and I think that's what causes part of the problem. Uh, there are some people in elected office uh, who just really want to sidestep any kind of accountability. I mean, and we've seen that happen more and more. And the easiest way to do that is to demonize the people that are asking the questions. And and it's not just Trump that did it or Pierre Polyev that done it. It's an awful lot of people do it these days. And it's, it's frustrating because they feel that, you know what, I can sidestep. I don't have to be accountable. Uh, I can just uh, go on social media and say whatever the hell I want. And, uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fact-based or not. And the people that like me are going to eat it up. The others are going to ignore me, but that's fine. What they're doing is playing to their crowd. And uh, that was it's a lot easier now because because they have that alternative right now. You don't have to be accountable. You don't have to ask questions. I mean, you know, the basic tenets in, in journalism, I learned this thing day one in school way back when, uh, was the five questions. Who, what, when, where, why. That's, that's the basis of any news story. You know, who's doing it, why they're doing it, where they're doing it, what's going to happen. That's it. And that, in other words, you're trying to get a story. You're trying to get the facts here. And uh, they don't want to really necessarily do that. Well, the other the other problem here, Bill, is the, uh, the, the sort of the now the backdrop for everything we do, both in the news media and in politics, is social media. And it has so coarsened the public dialogue now uh, that people feel... Uh, safe um, uh, yelling obscenities through social media at reporters, threatening language, but also towards politicians. I mean, we've had a number of, uh, here locally, we've had a number of politicians who have chosen not to run again. And when I look at the list of of those who have chosen not to run again, quite frankly, I think every one of them probably would have been reelected. So they, they weren't running away from defeat, but a number of them have said that the, you know, what they see they on social media, and, and I've talked to many politicians who simply say, I cannot actually look at my social media account because uh, the comments that come through are, are so terrible. Uh, you know, so social media is now the backdrop and people that are trying to do real journalism or real politics 
uh, with that going on in the background, it's uh, it's become a, a, a coarse, hostile, nasty environment that we're trying to do our jobs in. And, and I get that. I mean, you know, hey, I'm picking on a, I'm not picking on, I think I'm highlighting a couple of politicians that, that use this, I think, in all the wrong, or maybe the word is abuse, not use. And you're right. I mean, you know, uh, politicians have become victims of this as well. We've seen examples of that. And we've talked about that as well. Uh, but it's just, it's a, a totally, you know, skewed system right now. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm keep thinking about that Jack Nicholson line, you know, a few good men. You can't handle the truth. Nobody wants to hear the truth these days. They just want to hear, you know, what, what they want to believe in. I, I, my commentary on C.H. Miller this morning, I, I quoted the, the classic line from Andy Rooney, who was the commentator on 60 Minutes for so many years. Uh, and he said, people will generally accept facts as truth, but only if those facts agree with what they already believe. And that's somewhat cynical, but I think there's a truism there. And I think it's it's really shown in in what you've just described over the last little while. Well, and, and Rooney's comments were 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think he'd recognize the world uh, today. Um, so, you know, there's there's uh, a lot going on and, and it's diminished us all. Um, you know, Paula, you look at a guy like Pierre Poilev, he's never done anything. He's never cashed a check in his life that didn't have a government coat of arms on it. Career politician from his teens. Um, and that doesn't mean that he that he couldn't be useful. But uh, you're, you're looking at a man who sees the world through the, you know, has never been out of the bubble, uh, frankly. And, and to some degree, that's the, the same thing with Trudeau. Uh, you know, they've always lived in and around politics all their life. You know, the, the days of somebody having a, a distinguished career in business and then deciding to donate themselves, if you will, and their expertise and their experience to, to maybe a couple of terms in office, those days are gone. The, the, the caliber of cabinet ministers uh, is, is very much diminished. They, they used to, you know, it used to be a big deal if a cabinet minister came to town with an announcement, but now they're just shills for their, for basically for the PMO. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, from the standpoint of policy or running departments, uh, uh, it's very difficult to take them seriously. Uh, but similarly, we're, you know, in the, in the media, because social media is called media, uh, the media have taken an awful hit in terms of, of, of its credibility, even though our newspapers are still trying to do their best. Uh, television news um, in Canada, at least, is, is largely factual. Um, it's not like the United States where you've got three channels that are nothing but opinion. So, you know, it's, uh, it's just a tough time to be in either game. That would be my uh, summation of the current situation. Yeah, and I know we're just about out of time, but I mean, and for those who will decry uh, you know, mainstream media, uh, what mainstream media gives people is, is a variety of, of opinions and choices, but facts are facts. Uh, you know, they, they, how many times have you heard criticism about CBC? There are conservative right-wing voices on CBC, a lot of them. Uh, and there are newspapers that, that, you know, will print that sort of stuff too. That's, we've got a variety here. What, what social media does is it, it gives you the opportunity to, to be able to filter out anything that you don't want to hear because you disagree with it and just concentrate on what you've got. And I think we're all the worse for it because of, of, of that perspective that people take. Anyway, uh, we, we got to run. John, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation today. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Good to be with you. You betcha. John Best from the Bay Observer.
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With Russia losing ground to a strong counteroffensive in Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin met with Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time since the invasion. Uh, it was an interesting meeting, too. Analysts say it wasn't really a meeting of equals. Uh, Russia's you know, increasing isolation, of course, because of the, uh, the war in Ukraine, really put Putin at a somewhat of a disadvantage. ABC News contributor Steve Gagnon has some details. Putin's initial statement going into the meeting with Xi had a very subservient tone to it. And he actually said, we understand that you have questions about what's going on in Ukraine and we'll answer those. He didn't need to say any of that. He had to come out publicly, and obviously somebody on the Chinese side said, you need to make it clear that we have concerns about your behavior in Ukraine. But it made Putin look very, very subservient. Interesting perspective on that. Uh, Joining us to uh, give some perspective to this uh, is uh, Thomas Hughes. Thomas, of course, is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Not at all. Delighted to join you. It's an extremely interesting few days. Hasn't it, though? I'm, I'm... you know, not in physical terms, but almost uh, in, there seemed to be almost a, a, a genuflection from Putin here to, to simply say, look, it, I, I know you're not crazy about what we're doing, uh, but let's you know try to get over that. And I'm not so sure China's going to let that go so easily. No, absolutely. So I, I think there's there's a couple of points of caution we, we have to introduce at, at this point. Interestingly, uh, Putin used very, very similar words uh, slightly earlier today during a bilateral meeting with Modi from India um, Mm. and potentially responding to some Uzbek concerns as well. And the suggestion in in that phrasing was that I know about your position on the conflict and also about your concerns. So I don't know whether the comments from Putin this morning were uh, already planned or if this potentially was something of an effort to um, mitigate the damage, frankly, from, from yesterday, uh, to suggest that it's, it's not only uh, China that they are talking about concerns with, they are, they are talking about concerns perhaps more, more broadly with, with other countries who feel this. Or, indeed, if, if some of these other countries have done exactly as, as was suggested just before and, and um, joined the, the Chinese efforts to put some pressure on, on Russia and remind Russia that actually they uh, are in need of support from other places. They do have questions to answer, even from countries that are nominally um, their, their partners, if not their allies. Well, I found wordsmithing, I guess, Thomas, is always important in these situations. Yes. And, and uh, Putin described uh, his uh, his association, I guess, with China as uh, he said he wanted to uh, congratulate China for their quote-unquote balanced position, uh, which is to say they have not chastised him publicly. I guess that's really what he's come to trying to get across, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And I, I, I think the, the wordsmithing, is, as you put it, is a, is a wonderful word. I have huge respect for uh, those who are translating um, these these summits because it's it's <laughs> difficult to get the nuance there but but that talk about the balanced position is is really important and I, I think going back to your earlier point it, it's important for China uh, right now to not be seen to be leaping in on either side here that they they do appear to want to maintain a, a position of uh, aloofness perhaps from this situation so by by talking about balance, uh, I think it was a, a clever word in a way for for Putin uh, and his team to use because it it does suggest still some support from China for for what they're doing in Ukraine for their war in Ukraine, without um, 
really putting pressure on on, on China for not uh, providing more overt support. China is, I don't want to say they're on the fence on this, but I think what they're doing is, is I think you've mentioned to us before, Tom, so they're being strategic. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, 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 they're not against Ukraine. Uh, they, they've actually shown some sympathy towards Ukraine, but, but they won't condemn Putin and Russia for what they're doing here. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if that has more to do with their, their economic concerns than it does with, any, with the political concerns. It's a great question, and I think it's a it's a really difficult one to to balance. It would be a, a long and really interesting discussion to to work out the relative balance between the the economic and the political, and, and the, the degree to which they're they're connected. Uh, but I I think that there is there is very very clearly an economic dimension uh, to this relationship, and it seems very obvious that Russia has um, so China has taken advantage of low uh, energy costs uh, within Russia due to the sanctions uh, and the, the Russian relationship with Europe um, to increase their imports of, of uh, Russian oil and gas. And, and that is really significant for a Chinese economy that, that is strong, but perhaps starting to, to show a few cracks. So um, that, that's really important for, for China to be able to do. But I think there may, may also be some concern within China that if they do come down very hard on the Russian side of, of this war, then they may also be subject to some degree of sanctions from, from other areas of the world, the United States and, and uh, Europe in particular. Now, that, that is a, a long shot in some ways. We know that, that European and, and US economies, um, I wouldn't say reliant on China, but, but have a strong relationship with, with the Chinese economy. So sanctioning China... Um, significantly would be would be very difficult, but I do wonder if that is a pathway that that is being walked within China. They don't want to um, to upset the relationships with other other parts of the world more than they they feel that they have to. We know that that China is not um, overtly disrupting uh, and, and trying to change the status quo in a sort of aggressive, open way in the way that we've seen. Um, Russia do that in in Ukraine in in recent years and particularly in in recent months. Uh, so I think that there is a, a degree of China trying to to um, stay apart from from this conflict, which is also of course just very difficult um, for them to do because they have talked so openly about uh, the positive relationship that they have with Russia. Uh, there are some questions about the closeness of that, but I think it has been important for both of those countries just to to demonstrate that. Um, there is a counter position to what they see as as Western hegemony uh, in in the world that they do have a role that that um, offsets American influence to an extent. So ensuring that that there is some unity there is important for both of them, and particularly for Russia right now. Um, the 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 more they appear to be isolated, I think the easier it is um, for for Western countries as well to continue to put that pressure on on Russia. Which I guess underscores probably one of the not stated but probably obvious reasons why Putin's even making this trip right now uh, is to show the uh, the people back home, the oligarchs especially who support him, that we are not isolated. We still have friends. Uh, you know, these are our, our, if not partners, they are our friends. Uh, and it's not you know coincidental, I guess, that he goes to China and then right uh, over that to India to see Modi, both of whom are major trading partners. Well, I mean, we already know about the, the pipeline deal that China and Russia worked out a little while ago. And, yeah. and India, notwithstanding what's going on with the sanctions against Russia, is still a very big trading partner with the Russians. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, it's it's huge. This this SCO 
meeting um, that, that is going on at the moment is a, a real signal of, a, of an economic, it's a, it's a dangerous academic phrase, but an economic block, uh, for want of a better a, a expression, that, that does have um, interesting foundations uh, that could, if leveraged correctly, have huge benefit for all three countries. But I think the point that you just made about the, the pipelines is an interesting one as well and is, is worth looking at, because uh, unfortunately, um, switching supplies of energy from Europe to China uh, or elsewhere, it isn't, it isn't just like turning a tap off in one room and, and turning it on in another. There needs to be a very sophisticated um, uh, network of, of pipes and, uh, and other technologies to enable um, the, the transfer of, of that energy. So this has to be a more medium-term process uh, for Russia if they are going to be able to bring that, that money in through, the, um, through China. Uh, and other countries. And then, of course, there's the question of, well, what do you do with the money? Uh, I mean, money, as we know, is, is very fungible, but, but Russia can't fight just with the money. They need to use those funds to um, pay troops, which is more straightforward, but they also need to buy equipment. And then where are they going to be buying this equipment from that is actually going to enable them to continue that fight? The, the relationship between China and Russia in terms of their uh, uh, arms deals uh, and their military technology change and, and sharing is is extremely interesting and slightly murky. Uh, and I'm not personally, this is a personal view completely, I'm not 100% convinced that um, China is giving Russia the technology that they would need to offset the losses in technology um, from the sanctions that, that Europe have been putting on them. Uh, so I think... Um, the, the money flowing into Russia is hugely important for Russia to continue the fight in Ukraine, but it's not sufficient on its own to be able to do that. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. I mean, after the photo ops and, and you know, the, the Putin sits down with these two other world leaders. But I, I got the sense just from the body language and, and some of the, the, the press releases that have come out subsequent to this, Thomas, uh, that they're not going to publicly chastise Russia for what they're doing in Ukraine. But I think both India and China... Uh, would prefer that Russia just backed off. And uh, they're not going to say that, but you know, I'm, I'm sure that was hinted during some of those closed door discussions that look at it's time to bring this thing to an end. It's it's going on way too long and it's having too much of a negative impact on everybody's economy right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, body language, obviously, it's always always easy to look for uh, what we think is there. I'm tremendously guilty of that, but but in this case. The, the awkwardness was, was palpable. And Modi said this morning that this is not a time for war, to which I'm sure Putin would have responded, well, we're not at war, we're in a special military operation. But I think it actually really, it, it does indicate that um, this is a destabilizing conflict. Um, this is not just for the, the horror that is going on in Ukraine. Um, uh, it, it's not just confined to Ukraine. This is having a bigger impact. And for a country like India, if they do show that overt support to Russia, again, like we talked about before with China, well, what does India's other partners and allies in Europe um, and beyond, uh, respond? how do they respond to that as well? So it's a very delicate situation there. And I think you're absolutely right. I think if, if I was um, on the, 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 the staff of Modi or Xi Jinping, then I, I would be also suggesting to, to Putin that... Um, 
we need to see how this is going to end. This cannot be um, just an unending conflict. We cannot afford to let this become a, a frozen conflict uh, in which you are continually relying on us for support because you have been totally isolated from Europe. That that puts everyone in a very difficult situation. So I think you're absolutely right. There, there must be, behind those closed doors, some pressures, at the very, very least, to understand how Russia thinks it's actually going to finish this war. Uh, and, and that is not an easy question for, for Russia to answer right now. Well, if, given that scenario, and I totally agree with you too, Thomas, uh, and, and given what happened militarily over the last eight or ten days mm-hmm. in Ukraine, uh, is Putin looking for an exit ramp here uh, so he can graciously, you know, pull back? Uh, I don't know how he would characterize it. You know, we we went yeah. we did what we went in there to do. We we've eradicated the Nazi influence there. You know, our Russian people in Ukraine are are free now, so we're going home. It's a fascinating question. I I've been extremely interested over the last. A few weeks to watch some of the talk shows in Russia uh, and what some of their experts uh, have been saying. I mean, they're, they're political commentators, really. And I think it's very difficult for Putin to have an off-ramp right now. I think there has seems to have been, again, you've got to be a little bit careful with, with who you're listening to on, on these sorts of shows, but mm-hmm. there seems to um, be a, a a position that's growing that actually this is not just about denazification of a small region or even of figures at the top of the government, that there's such aggression against the the Ukrainian population as a whole that I think that any sort of pulling back now would be, um, it would be extremely damaging uh, for for Putin amongst that population. I think the, the fact that the conversation seems to be more around the potential damage to Putin's regime from a full mobilization of the Russian population, if they called for that, uh, is is being talked about much more than the damage to Putin's regime if they pulled out completely. Um, if that if that sort of distinction makes sense, so I think they're they're looking on the other side. They're looking at how to escalate further rather than where to de-escalate at the moment. Um, that said. Uh, if we and we're assuming here that, that Putin is receiving appropriate information, we, that, that, that he is receiving full information, which doesn't seem to have been the case over the last uh, few months, um, we we just don't don't know what what he knows uh, about the conflict at the moment. But it it would it would surprise me if there aren't conversations going on right now exactly along the lines that you said. As uh, how can we pull back here? Um, I mean, the, the reality is Russia is still in control of, of large swathes of, yeah. of Ukraine. Uh, and so that makes it very difficult um, to, to, for them to also, again, to pull out completely. i got a couple of minutes left, but i got to get your read on that. Based on what we've heard over the last couple of days, especially I, I thought the remarkable story about 11 uh, Soviet high officials and oligarchs, etc., cetera, uh, that were in some way you know, part of the, the inner circle anyway, are, are all dead. They either committed suicide or, you know, whatever. The, the, some hung themselves, were told, whatever the case might be, but they're dead. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, with with Putin, Thomas, you never think of coincidences, okay? The, that, that tells me that there, there's a lot of discontent and some insurrection in the ranks there. And this is how Putin deals with insurrection. Yeah, uh, it's it's very easy to, to speculate uh, and draw connections um, and, and see this as as part of a grand sort of plan within for, for Putin. But 
it 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 starts to feel like it's becoming a little bit too too much for for pure coincidence there i i agree with you there and what i think is particularly interesting the bit that we don't know right now is um, i would imagine that that if it is the case that that these people have um uh, the decision um to commit suicide has not been solely on their own basis um if that is actually the the case i would love to know what they have done why they have gone um a little bit further than than they have perhaps in the past uh, in terms of expressing their position because i don't think that this is something that um putin would risk um if it was simply a case of dissent if this was simply a case of discussion I, i'm not prepared to believe that that putin is is daft enough frankly to um run solely as an uh, uh, as his ideas to run without getting input from other people and i have no doubt that people will have different opinions of what russia should have done about various different things in in the past and i can't imagine that in this case simply suggesting that maybe uh, russia should look for an off ramp in ukraine would have been sufficient um for them to fall out of a window I, I think- no, I totally agree. I, as, when I heard that story the other day, Thomas, the first thing I thought of was the attempted assassination on Hitler, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, by a number of generals, yeah. and uh, it almost succeeded, of course, as we know historically. Yeah. Uh, but some of the high-ranking generals, including Rommel, were were basically given the option of of committing suicide as opposed to being executed. So yeah. I, I don't know what's going on in that situation, but it, it, uh, it's food for thought, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That will, I think, take some years to, to emerge. Um, and if, if it does, it is going to be extremely interesting. Uh, Thomas, always great to uh, get your perspective on some very, very important issues. Thanks so much for this. Have a great no weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Bye for now. You too. Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the uh, Canadian Defence and Security Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to swing back over to politics for a second. Uh, we've been f- focusing, and I guess rightly so, an awful lot about Pierre Polyev this week because he, of course, just won the leadership and he's already butted heads with the media and, and decided that they're going to be the enemy, etc. But we'll get into that a little bit further later on. But there's another political party that's also looking for a leader right now, and that's the Federal Green Party. Uh, and it's not going well for this party, uh, much to the surprise of an awful lot of people. The, the Green Party globally has had some success, especially in some of the Scandinavian and European countries. Uh, it just, they can't seem to get up past the starting line here in Canada for a variety of reasons. And, and some suggesting it's because they have this propensity to self-destruct. And that's happening right now, too. They're supposed to be running a leadership uh, race right now, but it's uh, it's not going well. It doesn't really look much like a leadership race. I uh, want to get our, our guest's opinion on what's happening here. She knows all about politics. She was there for quite a long time. Peggy Nash is a former NDP finance critic. She's also an author now of a book called Women Winning Office, An Activist's Guide to Getting Elected. Uh, Peggy, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us again today. Happy to be here. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing well. I'm, I'm watching with great interest and, 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 and maybe a little consternation about what's going on with the Green Party now. We, we know that, of course, to the brief history, for those who may not know, Elizabeth May stepped down for, after a long time. Anna Mae Paul was elected leader. Uh, and, boy, they put her up on a pedestal. I guess that's who could take shots at her. I mean, she, it, was, it, it was ugly. And as, as we know, Peggy, when, when she retired and finally gave up the leadership, uh, she said it was one of the worst experiences of her life. Uh, you've been in the political wars. 
I, politics and, and political parties are like families. I mean, there's going to be some bickering and infighting, uh, but the Green Party just seems to take it to the next level. What's going on? I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this. We've seen divisions in parties before. I've lived for, through a few of them in my own party, in the NDP, but uh, I think the Green Party is going through something that is completely different, and it... Uh, it's ironic that at a time when there's greater awareness and greater urgency about uh, about climate-related issues and the need for governments to take action, that the party that has made its, its raison d'etre, its reason for being, uh, stopping climate change and improving our environment, that they seem to be imploding. And I, I don't think that's too strong a word, imploding, because... Uh, it's like they've got their shoelaces tied from the starting gate of a leadership <laughs> race. It's it's uh, it must be very frustrating for their longtime supporters and members. And, and that's I think part of the the confusion and the conundrum that they find themselves in, isn't it? Uh, you know, we as a nation, I hope, hopefully as a, as a global people, uh, I think finally understand the need for for climate change and environmental concerns, et cetera. And you would have thought, boy, this is right into their wheelhouse. Not not necessarily that they're going to form a government, but that they're going to have more influence in the political scene. And uh, you're right, they they keep tripping and falling when things happen. Uh, you know, Anna Mae Paul was elected as the leader a while ago, as we know, and she was uh, the first black woman, first Jewish black woman actually to be elected in that position uh and you thought well that's that's a first for canada that's good and uh but it was awful i mean you know there was infighting people were forced or tried to resign they tried to get her to quit two or three different times uh the last federal election in which she was involved as you know peggy um i don't think she went outside of her riding in toronto i mean she was the national leader but she didn't campaign for anybody else i don't think she even got on a plane uh, and, and which is, and she finished ranking third or fourth in that writing, anyways. It turns out, how, uh, uh, how do these guys get their act together? Well, you know, I think part of their challenge is that that the whole issue around climate change and the urgency of this message has filtered through to most major political parties now. Mm -hmm. So they're not the only party talking about the need for environmental sustainability. So, uh, you know, you, you may not think that other parties go far enough or, or you may not be 100% on side with their message, but every party has some message around the environment. And I think that's been part of the problem for them. I think another part of the problem for the Green Party has been the lack of proportional representation. If we had had this in... Uh, not necessarily the last federal election, but in previous elections, the Green Party might have won, in fact, would have won more seats. And we see this uh, first-past-the-post um, structure that we have. Right now, it is biting the Liberals, uh, provincially in Ontario, because even though they got... Um, a significant number of votes, they didn't win enough seats to get party status. So uh, I think uh, other parties adopting the Green Party agenda, uh, the lack of proportional representation are two big issues. But I'll say the third issue is really just self-inflicted by the Greens. You know, if you're going to elect a woman, a, a black Jewish woman as leader, 
you need to ensure that she does well. You need to put in lots of support for her. She's got to have the financial support, the political support. You better have everybody on that team pulling for her because she's going to face enough challenges um, from outside forces. And I, I'm, you know, I don't know the mechanisms and what happened inside the Green Party, but clearly that didn't happen. It seemed like she was was eaten alive from within her own party and for that party now in the middle of a leadership race to say that the former leader who said she's done with the leadership it's time to pass the torch she had her time now she says she wants to come back and be the leader it's like back to the future (laughs) um i don't know that that sends the right message for green party members who want uh, a renewed party and a vision for the future it it doesn't seem to jive i think for a lot of people well and and as you say they self-destruct on way too many occasions uh there was the elizabeth may situation as you say she wants to run again although it sounds like they're kind of tag teaming with some of the the way that they're, they're putting this leadership thing together uh and then, of course, you've got the situation, as you mentioned, uh, well, let's face it, uh, the, the way they mistreated Anna Mae Paul and uh, the, the, the sorts of comments that were coming from the organization within the party and, and, and others, and, of course, the party executive, uh, that forced her out. So um, now you've got accusations once again about uh, uh, the, now I guess the current, or I guess it's not she's resigned again, uh, Amita Kutner, uh, who is uh, the, kind of the interim leader, uh, and uh, there's a big turmoil there, but uh, the wrong kind of pronouns used in all the letters and all the uh, literature that they sent out here. And she's forced to, uh, threatening to resign. A number of other people have threatened to resign right now. It sounds an awful lot, Peggy, like there's uh, at least a thread, if not a wave of intolerance within that party. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that their membership probably skews towards older um older canadians Mm -hmm. i I could be wrong but if that's the case they may it's possible they're 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 a bit behind the times in terms of understanding how canadian society is changing and uh where they need to where they need to get to in order to appeal to a broader uh, demographic of canadians um it it uh it it really is perplexing that they take a lot of pride in electing someone maybe who is a non-binary leader or who is, you know, a black Jewish leader, but then, uh, you know, not supporting that person and then saying, well, we have no choice. We have to go back to tried and true what worked in the past and, and in fact didn't really work well because the Green Party has never gotten past uh, two or three seats federally, so it's uh, in one seat, at least in Ontario. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I don't think what worked for them in the past has worked. They do need to have a new vision, a new leader, new energy, but I just don't see where that's going to come from. I don't, uh, I don't see it in these internal squabbles, and I think unless they get their own act together and double down on what uh, what should be important to them, and and as a political party, you know, you're not just a lobbyist on issues. Political parties are created in order to win power. That's the goal of all political parties. Otherwise, you might just be, you know, might as well just be another political lobby group. 
So if they're not serious about winning power, which they don't seem to be, then, you know, what is their purpose for existing? And I think that's what they have to do some soul searching about. Well, and the the difference, I guess, and you mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, I mean, there's always going to be bickering all, all your years in politics. Uh, you know, the NDP have had their problems. The, the conservatives did in this last leadership race. That was pretty evident. And, uh, and as have the liberals. But what they tend to do more often than not, is is keep it behind closed doors. Every now and then, a little bit might leak out, but but the, these guys, are, I mean, they're not just washing their laundry in public. I mean, they're they're just laying it all out there for people. You got executives writing nasty letters and emails back and forth from each other. What what's that old phrase? I mean, nobody else is going to like you if you don't like yourself. I I don't think <laughs> these people like each other. Yeah, I, it does seem like a particularly nasty environment, and I guess. You know, if you're trying to raise funds as a political party, you're trying to recruit candidates, uh, who's going to want to be part of that mess? I know I sure wouldn't want to be. You want you want to go where there's energy, where there's excitement, where uh, you, you've got uh, hope for the future. And I think, sadly, that's missing. If they are in a leadership campaign, and unless they can get ahead of steam behind a leader that really can uh, that can win the leadership and that can unite the party and focus on winning seats unless they can do that then i think they've lost the reason for being and they might want to think about um folding their tent and that would be sad i i am someone who supports political diversity that's why i support um proportional representation i think people should have a choice of where to put their their votes and their support um but if the green party can't get internal not unanimity but some kind of cohesion they have to ask themselves how they're going to persuade others to support them and that really is an existential question right now for the green party yeah, because the basis of, of the discontent here and the turmoil doesn't seem to be policy. And, and oftentimes that, that can be the driver, can it, Peggy? Oh, I, I think we should do this. No, I think we should go this way with it. And you know, there's any number of different topics that, that fall under the category. But this is personal. They just don't like each other. Yeah, I know. It's like a, it, it's like a high school class, you know, where you've got little cliques of... Uh, of people who who can't seem to get along with each other but you know they they really have to pull up their socks and decide that their issue is a bigger issue it's a more important issue and they have to all decide to work together and i i really sincerely hope they do that uh because if they can't um you know it just offers less choice to Canadians, and um, I don't think that's a good thing, but they do have to get past their internal squabbles. And it's, you know, I, I don't like everybody that I work with, but you have to, if you have a goal, then you decide to put those little personal differences aside and you work towards that goal. That's what people expect of a mature political party. And and somebody has to take the reins, uh, Peggy. And you know when when there were squabbles when when you were in the game, I, I would assume the party whip, the party leader, somebody, maybe both, uh, are the ones that have to get on the phone and say, okay, let's straighten this out right here and now. Uh, I don't know that anybody's doing that here. 
Yeah, I think, you know, my observation is if Elizabeth May wanted to play a really constructive role, she would be that person getting on the phone, but in support of another person who can lead the party, who can take the reins and really express that vision for the future. Somebody who's a strong communicator, who has strong commitment, who has a vision, she could get on the phones and and work and use her credibility because let's face it, she she has done a tremendous amount of work for the Green Party. Um, but but she could use her credibility and her her popular support to win support for a future leader. I think she would really do a great service to her party if she did that. Well, and we've seen that happen, haven't we, with past leaders taking almost a, uh, uh, you know, ceremonial role such as it is, as, as uh, you know, uh, conciliary sort of, I guess, for these parties. And I, I don't know what's going to happen now. It's it's a mess the way things are going. Uh, Peggy, you've got to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Thanks so much for this. Uh, I hope the book is selling well these days. The book is called uh, <laughs> Women Winning Office, An Activist Guide to Getting Elected. Maybe you should send copies to the Green Party folks. Uh, might, might, might be a, be a bad idea for <laughs> After this interview, they may not want to buy my book. But I, I really, I, I offer my opinion with uh, with the support and hope that they do get get their act together. <laughs> Thanks again, Peggy. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Bye bye. Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic and author. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.